Hi, everybody. This is Diabolically Informative, and you are listening to Catholic versus Other. So if you could just talk a little bit about who you are, what you believe, and how you came to believe it. Absolutely. My beliefs about the world are effectively what you might call Pythagoreanism or mathematical idealism. There are many other names for these views nowadays on the internet, but uh, that's essentially what it comes down to. As a child, I was actually given a significant amount of religious liberty, even though that my parents were, say, my mom, for instance, was Catholic, my father was uh, Serbian Orthodox. Nobody really pushed anything on me. I had uh, grown up in, a, in an age of a lot of religious tolerance and also a lot of religious indifference. However, I was able to pursue my own beliefs uh, on my own, explore things, you know, believe in this and believe in that, and uh, just discover myself. So even though my general theological upbringing might be said to be Catholic, I had uh, already at an early age taken exception to this and uh, came to develop my own ideas of, say, what God might be, what souls might be, and that sort of stuff. You might say that as a child, I had a very Spinozistic outlook on life, although I didn't know it. Well, to be a philosopher, you must first be a Spinozist, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, now, later on, I began to, to question a number of these things. Of course, I had come to, say, atheism and materialism for very simple reasons. Though, as I had actually developed uh, my philosophical outlook, I decided that this position was untenable, not for religious reasons or reasons of um, personal belief or need, but for metaphysical reasons, for reasons of consistency. You see, even as a teenager, I had valued the consistency of what we believe in over, say, you know, any one particular position. I was motivated primarily by logic, and uh, later on, primarily by mathematics. There are two theories of truth. There's the coherence theory and the correspondence theory, right? So you want your truths to cohere among themselves and to correspond with objective reality if you believe in an objective reality. Do you believe in an objective reality? Oh, I must. Yes, of course. However, I actually uh, think that the epistemological account of coherence and correspondence are primarily linguistic accounts. If you suppose that the universe is, say, mathematical, then you're going to have to rework a lot of what we mean in language and what, uh, what say, the mathematics refers to. But I would say it is still squarely within the uh, correspondence end. But coherence, for instance, doesn't necessarily dictate logical consistency, just that uh, beliefs um, mesh together. I take a more, you might say, almost chromatic approach to logical consistency. Things must be consistent on a very fundamental metaphysical and ontological level. Things must be consistent at a measurable empirical level, and so on and so forth. I just want to say for the record that I do believe that the only reality or the most fundamental reality is relation. So I don't think that's far from your worldview, really, when you get down to it, because mathematics is primarily about relation, greater than, less than, equal to, these sorts of relations. If you look at the mathematical proof of 1 plus 1 equals 2, for example, it's about 300 pages long, and it boils down to relation. So, I don't think your worldview and my worldview differ that much fundamentally. 
Uh, yes and no. So, for instance, Leibniz, a certain quasi-Pythagorean, we might say, actually took a view that is similar to yours, but say for space and time and all these sorts of things. And I, I do respect a mathematical Platonism. However, I actually want to make a cut between Platonism and uh, Pythagoreanism. Relationism implies abstract entities or abstract relations, conceptual relations. Pythagoreanism doesn't necessarily imply that. I actually believe that mathematics, a certain kind of mathematics, is um, self-sufficient in and of itself, self-existing in and of itself, and concrete rather than abstract. You know, in effect, there are ways to make mathematics concrete and not just abstract and avoid some of the simple objections to Platonism by doing this. I am sort of by nature a Platonist. I'm a top-down thinker. I, I tend towards uh, principle, reasoning, deduction. Things I entirely respect, yes. Yeah. Um, the Catholic Church has embraced both Platonism and Aristotelianism, sort of that bottom-up approach as well. Yes. I'm a bit cautious of all empiricism and all inductive thought, but can you talk a little bit, because it's not clear, I haven't quite understood that cut that you wanted to make between Pythagoras and Plato. Who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, and why? Strictly speaking, I don't believe either are bad guys. Both are good guys. I, I, I almost wholly endorse both their views, but with a few caveats, of course. Pythagoras believed that mathematics is ontological. He thought that, you know, harmonies and all these sorts of things were not just abstract things. They were not just relations. They were very real. I recall as a teenager, I had this discussion with people, you know, a friend of mine and a few other friends, we had uh, asked each other, okay, so what do you think ultimately exists? I said waves. And the reason why I said waves was because waves are, in today's language, uh, scale invariant. You have waves everywhere. They're one of the most ubiquitous phenomena in the universe. So, um, of course, I didn't know how to express this mathematically. Now, my other friend, he said that he believed uh, that numbers are, are the real thing. And he said that, well, you know, there's two of things, there's three of something, there's always a number of something. This is the most common thing, therefore numbers are real. So how would you square these two views that say waves are real and that numbers are real? I take a very modern approach to Pythagoreanism. Waves are real, but waves are actually responsible for number. In a sense, waves and numbers are one and the same. But there is a difference between having, say, a wave that uh, interferes with itself and forms great and interesting patterns uh, across many scales, and, say, uh, just mere abstract relations. This wave, for instance, is a concrete thing that I have presupposed. It may be continuous, like a sinusoidal wave. There may be certain aspects of it, uh, discretized aspects of it, that result in solidity and other things like that. And, and so we get a concreteness from it. It's, it by, by the way, this is a sort of panpsychism as well. So that's why I say it mathematical idealism. Whereas with Plato, he just assumes that, uh, that forms exist. Forms are static. Forms are, in many cases, relations. In fact, I believe there was a proof of this by Edward Zalta, you know, showing how you can resolve the third man problem and everything like that by cutting out some of Plato's axioms. But Plato, at face value, did embrace a certain relationism, if by logical consequence, at least. And the third man problem is that we can always introduce that third term. Can you summarize that briefly? Well, I, in short, it's that you can introduce a form for a bunch of other forms. You could have forms of forms, etc. You never really ha can stop multiplying these entities. This is not an impossible view, I should say, but it's certainly an implausible one. 
Getting back to grammar, uh, you brought to mind uh, Nietzsche. He famously said, we, we can't have completely killed God until we've also killed grammar, the grammar of language. I thoroughly agree. I think he was prophetic in a lot that he said, and he was very playful also, so it's hard to unravel some of his jokes from profound prophetic truth. But I, I thoroughly believe that grammar is another set of relations. You, you sort of hinted at that. Can you talk a little bit about language and grammar and how it relates to mathematics? Yes. So, m many of the common popular positions in mathematics today about the philosophy of math, the foundations of math, are oftentimes formalistic, intuitionistic, and all this sort of stuff. What that means is that math can essentially be reduced to something else. I believe that if math is ontological and that a, a certain type of math is invariant, then you can't reduce math to anything else but whatever is ontological and invariant. And the reason for this is because any time that you try to make some sort of axiomatic system to capture all of this mathematics, you will always only cover a portion of it and never the entirety of it. So you have to sort of uh, demand uh, a sui generis mathematics. That means a mathematics that generates itself or that is self-existent? Is that what you mean? Yes, that is correct. I do actually think that this mathematics exists today. It is called a complex analysis. It is a very rich field. Complex analysis um, involves the complex plane in mathematics. That's real and imaginary numbers. This plane is algebraically complete. So that means that no matter what sort of transformations that you perform on the plane, and you can make certain special extensions that are completely legal, you'll never change this plane. It'll always remain itself. It's a very beautiful property, algebraic completeness. But the proof of, of the axioms can't be done within that realm, as Gödel famously said? What Gödel is saying is that there are certain truths that are inaccessible from the axiomatic system. And so they'll often take the form of formally undecidable propositions. That is, you'll never know whether it's a yes or a no as to whether the statement is true. However, if you're actually saying, look, I'm not going to take the formal axiomatic system, I'm going to take a roundabout but ontological justification for math's consistency, then the theorems don't necessarily apply to that. Most of the equations that you'll encounter in physics and in big mathematics and stuff, they'll involve certain operations which will be undecidable. There are a number of things within mathematics which completely imply that mathematics is independent of formal systems. Formal systems are great for computers, but not great for everything else. For instance, most of the real number plane is uh, actually inaccessible. You can't name all of the real numbers because there are uncountably many real numbers and there can only ever be countably many names. So, there, there, but the, there are even more reasons for it, too. For instance, I found uh, in formal systems, in second-order logic, that there are truth conditions in second-order logic, and uh, how many truth conditions are there? What if we were to maximize these truth conditions? That's the Hanf number, a special number. It actually turns out that the number is so large, we don't even know whether these numbers even exist yet, or whether they're even valid within set theory. This is really interesting, because we actually reason about mathematics, and we reason about it beautifully, and yet there are numbers that are so big that it just boggles the mind how we could possibly skip over something like that if math is only grounded in formal systems. You're not going to be able to capture the entirety of deductions with formal systems. You need to have a much bigger view of it. For instance, in, in analysis, you don't um, just write out um, every single solution to some sort of curve on a plane or something like that. You, you first specify what are the conditions for the solution. You specify, you know, you narrow it down through constraints 
constraints until you have something where you can tease out an answer. That's actually what I'm saying we should be applying to mathematics, not formal systems. Wittgenstein said very correctly that mathematics is nothing but tautology. So if mathematics is nothing but tautology, how is it that it could be inconsistent if it's nothing but tautologies? But of course, if you have so many tautologies, uncountably many tautologies and, and ones which are inaccessible from some set of axioms, then of course the axioms aren't going to capture all of it because the axioms aren't actually, strictly speaking, always mathematical. Yeah, there's a certain amount of groping in the dark that takes place. I'm just wondering if... Because in my worldview, there is no such thing as a genuine contradiction. There's only the sort of uh, the specter or the rumor of, of genuine contradiction and sort of the theater that would portray genuine contradiction. But if you look closely, the laws of nature are never being violated. The laws of mathematics are never being violated. The laws of relation are never being violated. Yes, that's correct. It's all smoke and, it's all smoke and mirrors. Yes, yes. Because of complexity. We live in a complex world. I watched your video when you were defending Hyperionism or whatever it's called, mm -hmm. uh, Morg. I follow him because I find his movement interesting because it's philosophical, because it's rational, and because atheism today is so vapid and so lame Yes, uh, with all the scientism and just the sort of complacency is so rampant and they're so smug and ill-informed that it's just, it just boggles the mind. So I'd like to see a bit of philosophical rigor coming back into atheism. Yeah, well, you know, to be honest, I, I actually believe that atheism only has a few consistent positions, and none of them today would be endorsed by many popular atheists, if at all. Are you an atheist? Well, strictly speaking, sure, but there are obvious technicalities where I just wouldn't want to identify myself as one today. You mentioned the principles that they can stand on. Can you f flesh those out for us? Well, actually, one is Schopenhauer's philosophy and the other is Edward von Hartmann's philosophy. They're big, complex systems, but uh, in a sense, both philosophies have no God, strictly speaking, though there is, you know, a single unity, a totality that, you know, transforms itself over time. They have the pessimism of atheists today, too, but there's also a little bit more to it. There's metaphysics and stuff like that. But how would that manifest in a modern-day run-of-the-mill atheist? How could I identify those elements in the Joe Blow atheist that I speak with? I actually don't think you can because those elements aren't there. Atheistic materialism, if you ask me, it's actually an entirely bankrupt view there are so many things that are intellectually wrong with it on the foundational level, but which are utterly ignored solely on the basis of evidence. So, for instance, I heard one of your uh, videos with uh, Matt Dillahunty, and um, you guys had an argument about the weather, whether it can be predicted and all that. So this argument about the weather is very telling because there are always going to be formal limits to prediction for weather, even though that, you know, there will be some state of weather which is completely determined in the future. It's just that with computers and with all these sorts of things, even the best computers today, you will still not be able to uh, predict the weather accurately any more than a week from now. You know, you can push it to two weeks. Even then, it's a great computational effort. But he, uh, he thought that, yes, you can predict the weather in the future anyways. But if he knew anything about the theory of, say, integrals, he would know that you, you really can't do it. There are very big limits on this. So there's a certain amount of trust, this inductive trust. You know, he, he denies that the world can be absolutely determinist, but assumes determinism within the inductive scope of what can be observed. These are entirely contradictory positions. If you want to remain consistent, you will have to ditch, you know, either atheism or materialism. You can't have uh, the two together. 
I'm an amateur philosopher. I have no background in philosophy, and my guests certainly don't claim to be professional philosophers. But when I talk about having infinite time behind us, they always say, well, that's no problem. They're, you know, the number line is infinite, therefore we can have infinite time behind us. But my problem with that is that we are bound up with space and time. So it's one thing to point to the number line and say that it's infinite. It's another thing to say that I'm going to do infinite tasks this morning before I settle into doing my work day, right? Yeah. There are so many things wrong with this statement that I I don't know where to begin, really. Um, But people are blurring the line between mathematics and our state as finite beings in a spatio-temporal world. Can you address that a little bit briefly? Yeah, so I actually do believe that the universe is indeed infinite. I suspect very strongly that the universe is... uh, exploded and reformed over and over again ad infinitum. Of course, the idea of spatiotemporal experience insofar as it is within a universe is always going to be finite. It's always going to be relational with regards to the universe that contains us. You can't, for instance, use the number line to very naively justify that. There are very um, immense uh, formal problems there if you wanted to do that. Do you remember the paradox where uh, the ancient Greeks talked about someone shooting an arrow at a target? So before it gets there, it has to go half the way, but then it has to go half the way of that half the way. Zeno's paradox, yes. Was that formally resolved? Is that an easy philosophical thing to debunk? Well, yes and no. Zeno's paradoxes today, the way that they're debunked in in philosophy, is to simply show how you do an infinite series and how the infinite series converges to a number. That is very trivial. But the main problem of Zeno's paradoxes uh, with regards to motion, you have to discretize motion. In, in Diabolically Informative, later on I will actually show you how you do that. But the answer is that motion must be discretized. And the moment that motion is discretized, then you overcome the paradox. Because if you're trying to move continuously, right, from some point A to some infinitesimal A plus E or whatever you want to call it, you will never reach your destination so long as you're moving from one infinitesimal to another to another to another, right? But uh, as long as you're moving at some discrete interval, you can actually traverse space, even continuous space. A lot of people like to think that there's no God and there's no supernatural, and yet somehow we have free will. And they like to use quantum indeterminacy, so-called uh, so-called randomness, which I don't believe in. I reject the Copenhagen interpretation and all those interpretations. I believe that everything has a reasonable cause and a sufficient reason. But they like to point to quantum stuff because it's so magical to somehow give them freedom of their will. It's completely absurd. Do you believe in the freedom of the will? And if so, on what basis? I can only believe in freedom of the will on an absolute metaphysical and compatibilist basis. I cannot believe in, say, the libertarian conception of free will. But insofar as, say, you are a self-contained being, then you will necessarily have free will. However, quantum indeterminacy and quantum indeterminism both do not entail free will. The reason being is that uh, quantum indeterminacy has to do with fundamental fuzziness, whereas quantum uh, indeterminism has to do with why we cannot specify causal variables for why something has to be absolutely determined in order for quantum mechanics to remain consistent and not non-local. So the Copenhagen interpretation is a bit of a cop-out where you say, I'm just going to ignore the stuff that I can't observe. And so long as I ignore this and make no attempt to mathematically resolve this, then my theory will remain consistent. 
It is actually a deeply problematic and subjectivist interpretation of quantum mechanics, but it's a simple one because it's easy to teach to students because you ignore all of the immensely difficult problems of, of that and um, you just carry on with the calculations. What do you think of Occam's razor? Is it being abused by scientism and the new atheism? Um when you try to multiply entities into superpositions and you say that you're following Occam's razor by doing this, you're really not. Schrodinger himself created his thought experiment so as to mock the new quantum theory, not to affirm it. It's just that people who later misunderstood Schrodinger took it seriously, which is very ironic. Again, I take a deterministic uh, interpretation of it because it does satisfy Occam's razor. I don't have an unreal wave function collapsing into reality. I don't have things that I don't observe that take infinitely many superpositions until I observe them. This sort of stuff is, is indeed a violation of Occam's razor. What is your background in terms of math, science, philosophy, or, or anything else academically? Or in terms of your passions, maybe your self-taught, I don't know. The second part to that question is, where is society headed? Because it seems to me that there is sort of a renaissance of philosophical discourse on the internet. I don't know if I'm imagining that or if it's something that's real. Could you answer both of those questions for me? Well, yes, I'll answer the second one first, because I do think that there is a renaissance of philosophical discourse, and we could all see it. But I'm actually deeply suspicious of intellectual progress that goes unguided by great minds. We're in many ways losing reverence for the big systems of old, and I think that's actually a bad thing. Many of these big systems need to be reinvented for today. In, in a wealth of knowledge and information, we need more cohesion. We need more streamlining. We don't need a multiplication of lots of disparate half-baked views. But unfortunately, I believe that it will tend in that direction until some future time when there's another quasi-intellectual revolution and people take on systematizing yet again. Um, now for the first question. I am actually right now finishing uh, uh, my honors BA in philosophy. And I'm actually going to pursue a second degree in mathematics. The reason being is that I have learned enough of it on my own that I might as well just finish everything up. And indeed, yes, I have been largely self-taught. From an early age, I was fortunate enough to have people give me books and um, give me the right books <laughs> by whatever accident. And I absorbed as much as I could and learned as much as I could. I don't need much in life. The only thing that I need is knowledge and lots of it. And that's quite literally all that I do. I read, I amass knowledge, I collect and streamline it. And for many years, I've been studying math and philosophy independently before deciding to take it up in school. Do you adhere to Hyperionism or are you sympathetic to the movement? I would say that I am sympathetic. They happen to have adopted a group of philosophical views, which I broadly agree with. And so that is why I felt I needed to defend them uh, in the public space here, because I feel a personal responsibility towards being a steward over these views. Did some of the more eccentric philosophers in classical Greek philosophy in that world, were some of them charismatic leaders, sort of the way Morg is putting on the theatrical presentation of a larger-than-life Gothic personality? Absolutely. In fact... Um, the most infamous is uh, Pythagoras, who had his uh, Pythagorean brotherhood, or however you might want to call it. 
Pythagoras was born around 570 BCE, and the Pythagorean Brotherhood, I believe, uh, closed up shop at around 495 BCE in Metapontum. However, the Brotherhood actually continued into Plato's day. This was a group of people who were exclusively focused on uh, studying mathematics and philosophy and, in, uh, and their moral education, and uh, they believed that they could perfect themselves by doing that. There were other philosophers which had uh, very interesting followings. So, for instance, there was Parmenides, who had uh, a very committed and small group of students as well. You had uh, Empedocles. He had a very interesting way of doing things. Empedocles, you might say, was the multimedia philosopher. So, he loved to put on a good show. He always loved to present himself as larger than life and to present his views that way. And boy, did people ever pay attention to him. The, the same was true for many philosophers throughout time. Even Plato had a certain charisma to him, and he uh, was not shy from using it. I don't believe that there is anything intrinsically wrong with using your charisma or showmanship and other things like that in order to get views that would otherwise be unpopular, in order to get them to be more loved and, uh, and more accepted. I think that that is actually how humanity conducts its affairs, and that it would really be unnatural or counterproductive to, to try and make an already difficult view more difficult to accept by presenting it the wrong way. One of my heroes is Socrates. Do you think that we understand Socrates' point of view more accurately than we do the seemingly uh, shifting point of view of Plato himself? Well, from what I can understand, there's actually a lot of historical records um, of Socrates' uh, existence from outside of just Plato, uh, the most famous of which is, uh, is Xenophon's um, he was, uh, he was the famous writer of the Anabasis. And um, Xenophon uh, actually wrote of running into Socrates in, um, in an alley. You know, there is, uh, the, and you, know, you also have uh, Aristophanes as well with his play The Clouds and all that. Um, how much do we understand of Socrates' viewpoint? I'm just not sure. There are, there are many interesting views mixed into, into Socrates. The earlier uh, texts of Plato's seem to have a more independent Socrates, while the later texts of Plato, he seems more like a sock puppet. So I would actually say that from the, you know, just from, uh, from textual analysis and historical stuff, that uh, maybe, maybe the, earlier Soc the, the Socrates from Plato's earlier works is much more indicative of what Socrates actually believed. Now, uh, I'll move on to other topics, but I just brief, very briefly want to touch on Aristotle. I have a sort of prejudice against him as a dry and boring man. Is that typical or uh, do you feel the same way? I think that you are actually sorely mistaken, but I believe that you are sorely mistaken just like everyone else's because we've been deprived of most of Aristotle's works. Let me tell you something. One of, uh, one of the ancient uh, thinkers, I believe it might have been Cicero, he said that uh, Plato's works were like lakes of silver, while Aristotle's works were like rivers of gold. It's actually known that uh, two-thirds of Aristotle's works are missing, and those two-thirds happen to be his public works. So we just have his lecture notes. He captivated people for hundreds of years after his death, and I believe that 
both uh, the burning of the library at Alexandria and uh, the Dark Ages had resulted in Aristotle's works being lost. I'll definitely look into it. And I do feel bad about my prejudice and I'm aware of it. It's okay. We, you know, to be honest, I have a hard time staying awake reading, uh, reading Aristotle as well. My favorite texts of his are, uh, are on poetry, on politics, and on his uh, Nicomachean ethics. And those are the ones where I can stay awake all night reading them. But others, they're a mixed bag, right? Um, I just want you to touch ever so briefly on St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, just to name two sort of geniuses within my Catholic tradition. Mm-hmm. Well, um, St. Augustine, just like uh, Pseudo-Dionysius, synthesized Neoplatonism. And so, the brilliant move that uh, Augustine and, and Pseudo-Dionysius had done was to include Greek philosophy within the uh, Christian faith. And um, the result of this actually was Thomas Aquinas. His Summa Theologica is a masterwork. It's one of humanity's uh, greatest accomplishments, actually. I greatly respect all three thinkers, though, of course, they are not without contradictions to me. Though the one with the least contradictions, or the one who's thought about it the most, is obviously uh, Thomas Aquinas. So, I want to get more into you as a person. Uh, where do you go when you die and what happens to you? What's the best case scenario for you? I don't actually believe that you die, ever. Um, you, your body dies, but you don't. Um, the memories that are tied with your brain and other things like that, they also don't die. They are lost, you could say, in a, in a jumble of things. You as a mathematical being necessarily cannot die. Uh, and the subjective experiences, the qualia that are associated with this math cannot die either. But you continue on. And, uh, and I would say that it is uh, simultaneously a both frightening and a very beautiful process. The eternal return seems to be something that you have in common with Stoicism. Uh, Stoicism is actually a very static philosophy. So while I, while I agree with certain things about Stoicism, such as really becoming a strong person, I don't really believe that uh, things are as static as the Stoics make it out to be. I, I think the universe is a dynamic Hegelian place. And uh, the universal logos, while ruled by eternal laws, mathematical laws, even, even in its gestalt, is a uh, dynamical entity. Do you think there's any reason to believe that one instance of that material universe, the physical universe, in that cycle is any better than the infinite other cycles? Do you, do you understand? Is there a progress? Is there an evolution? No, actually, uh, the evolution happens within the universe, the progress happens within the universe, and uh, we, we play this out again and again and ad infinitum, and uh, every single time I believe it is infinitely interesting. If it were not, it would eventually become infinitely boring. You know the principle of identity, A is A. Are these different universes that are coming into being and then disappearing, are they all A, or are they A, B, C, D, E, etc.? Well, no, I believe it's actually just the same, the same universe, the same collective totality of, of basic things transforming itself over time. I don't believe in a multiverse or anything like that. Is it like a beach where you have people building their sandcastles and then the sand gets wiped away by the waves 
and then someone else comes along and builds their little sandcastle, which is different, but um, there's a certain limitation on the parameters of how big and how wild you can go with the architecture. That's right, and we leave our mark on it. Yes, it's very much like that. In fact, it's appropriate that we do play on beaches and build sandcastles. Very metaphysically appropriate, yes. And so the best thing that we can do, like I'm trying to get at morality here, what is the point of doing anything? And why do we not indulge in what everyone agrees is evil, selfishness, uh, hurting people for pleasure and stuff like that? Well, because there's more to, to the universe than just that. Many people who do this have a very limited perspective on things. The universe evolves for, you might say, for eventually at least, for the sake of, uh, of altruism and reason. I don't believe that you can act immorally if you're a truly rational person. Why would you hurt someone else who is actually, in many ways, in complete identity with you, both at the very beginning and at the very end? I believe that we should certainly be improving ourselves and perfecting ourselves, becoming beautiful souls, and that we should be concerning ourselves with that, because if we do, we actually get to enjoy more. Why would you simply indulge in, in destruction and these sorts of things and hurting other people when you can actually spend your time being a much more constructive person, developing lasting, meaningful relationships, developing wondrous works of art, architecture, and civilization? You have only more to gain by doing that. And otherwise, if you indulge in these sorts of things, these violent monkey-like instincts, you have only more to lose. And you will also lose out on the time that you could have spent becoming better. So I want to get your opinion on slave morality versus master morality. Yes. Uh, Christianity famously is characterized as sort of the, uh, the pinnacle of slave morality. I don't know if that's true or not, but mm. what is your perspective on that? So here's the thing, David. Catholicism is probably the only faith that I know of which can really be synthesized with higher philosophy and science. It has embraced Greek philosophy as its theological uh, center point. The reason why Christianity is seen as by Nietzsche as the, as the pinnacle slave morality is because you've posited a master that is infinitely high above you and you infinitely below. And so there is nothing that you could do ever to make yourself equal to that. However, there was a Catholic theologian and thinker who proposed a scheme that does not contradict Catholicism and yet embraces rationalism and evolution and change and even becoming one with God, equal to God through oneness. This man was Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, and he's actually a very inspiring thinker who I like uh, quite a bit. I believe that, uh, that over time, even in a godless universe, you become better and better. You can become, so to speak, godlike by focusing on your self-development and your, your altruism, as I said, perfecting yourself. And yes, indeed, you require a sort of master morality for that as well, because you have to look eternity into the eye, so to speak. And you have to say, I know that everything that I do will one day, maybe billions of years from now, be completely wiped out and replaced but damn it, out of the creative spirit in my heart, out of the desire to become better, out of the desire to explore, I will gladly leap into that abyss and I will make it a fullness and not an emptiness. Are you a fan of existentialist philosophy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I believe that existentialism is absolutely necessary. It's beautiful. It's a choice that we have to make ourselves. We have to face our existential shadows. It's an act of taking responsibility, ultimately. Yes, an act of taking responsibility, an act of will, a desire for beauty in an absence of it. What is not admirable about that? 
So just to wrap up, uh, I always ask my guests to give a final thought. What would you say to anyone that's listening? Well, anything that I could say is always going to be colored by my experiences. But if I could say something, you know, subspecie eternitatis, as Spinoza says, I would say that uh, there is always more that you can do. There is always more that you can become. Don't worry about the people that have said that you couldn't do something. Don't worry about the people who have said that you don't have any hope. You always have hope when you take hope in yourself, when you even take responsibility for yourself. And sometimes you may also need others to help you do it. If you don't have a community, go and find one, go and develop one. And always, always seek after rationality, always, always seek after your emotional development, always seek after new lessons. And uh, never give up on yourself. If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you've got to do is ask. All you've got to do is ask.